This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. This week I had the privilege of going to Charlotte, North Carolina for a week. The seminary that I'm attending to work on this Doctor of Ministry degree has multiple campuses, and there was a class that I was interested in taking, and it's my penultimate class. Anyone know what penultimate was means? It's this next to last, right? Yeah. And uh, so I had seven classes that I take, and then after I finish this class, which I'm not you know, done yet, got to write a big paper, then I have my doctoral project. They don't call it a dissertation in this program. It's a project, but it's a big project. It's a big, long paper. But I'm feeling good because I've gotten almost all the classwork done. Probably take me a couple years uh, to, to finish the paper. But anyway, that's what I was doing this week. I was in Charlotte. I spent most of the day in the airport in Memphis because we had a problem. There was lots of ice and snow in Charlotte, but I ended up getting there a little bit late, and I had a really uh, great experience. I, this class was on uh, church planting and mission and discipleship movements, and so it was fascinating to sit with uh, other folks who were thinking about that and how we help our churches grow to become the kind of churches that can, that can reproduce. I really, I really enjoyed that experience a lot. And it was making me think about last summer when I took a class called Paul's Use of the Old Testament. And in that class, we really dug down into how much the Apostle Paul, through all of his writings, but especially in the letter of Romans to the church in Rome, how much Old Testament Paul really uses. And so it did a couple of things for me. First of all, it really it shouldn't have been surprising to me, but it did open my eyes to see how much the Apostle Paul refers to the Old Testament. So it made me think, wow, he really is a, a student of the Old Testament. We know that he was a rabbi, he was a, a Pharisee, so he had a lot of education in understanding the Old Testament. But boy, it really, really comes through. And in, the, in the, the chapter that we're considering this morning, all of chapter 10, he refers to the Old Testament either by quotation or by allusion at least 10 times considering on how you, uh, how you understand it. That's a lot of references to the Old Testament. So it said a couple things to me then. Like, then, first of all, the Old Testament is a valuable resource for every believer. It's something that's worthwhile. Sometimes we get uh, stuck in a Christian tradition where we say, well, that was the Old Testament. That doesn't apply to us anymore. Now we live in the New Testament times. So we don't really even need to study or understand it. But if we're looking at the Apostle Paul and what he focused on and what he studied and how he was making his arguments, how he was trying to encourage the church in Rome. Remember, they're in this massive city trying to be faithful, this small group of people struggling with their, uh, their own journey, living in uh, this commercial center, living in a military center, living in a pagan, over-sexualized culture, and Paul is wanting to encourage them. He's referring back to the Old Testament. And it's likely that even in that community of faith, there were some Jews that, that had a better understanding of what he was talking about. But, but many of them were, were Gentile converts that had simply met Jesus. But even then, Paul is saying to them, knowing this backstory, knowing that these ideas that I'm sharing with you, they didn't, they're not coming from me. They're not, they're not my ideas in the same way that what I'm telling you, these aren't my ideas. These are God's ideas from ancient history, from before time. God had established these, these ways of communicating with his people and these lessons that are so important for us to learn. Because if we're going to learn something, then we need to be able to apply something. 
Like, what does it mean for me to, to know these stories from the Old Testament or know these passages from the New Testament if it's not actually making a difference in my life every day? I want to be able to apply God's word to my life so that it leads to flourishing, so that it helps me in my marriage, that it helps me in, at work and in the classroom. It makes a difference in my city, right? So that's what I'm always reminding you of is just to learn something this morning, whatever it is that God is teaching you through his word as he speaks to you through this message and through his word. But then remember, how are you applying it? What's the one thing you can walk out of here and say, I'm going to live this way now as a response to what God has spoken to me. Now, I'm not going to go into detail in all 10 of the Old Testament references in the passage, but you're going to see them. And so I'm going to read all of chapter, uh, all of chapter 10. It's kind of long. It's 21 verses. But in order to kind of get the whole sense of the passage, we're going to go through it together. So if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now remember, he is referring back to, to the Jews. That's what he was talking about last year. They may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for the righteous to everyone who believes. Here he goes in the Old Testament. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Another Old Testament passage here, he says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For Another quote, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the, of the world. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have known myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Lord, there's a lot here. There's a lot that we can't get to and a lot that we don't understand. But Lord, there's a lot that we can understand. 
There's a lot that we can grasp. There's a lot that we can consider. There's a lot that we can apply to our lives. So help us to grab hold of something that by your power, through your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us and help us to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, This summer, we took a long, slow drive on the Avenue of the Giants. Has anyone ever been on the Avenue of the Giants? Anyone? There's some people here that have been on the Avenue of the Giants. We rode together, remember guys? The Avenue of the Giants is this stretch of highway where you break off of the 101 in Northern California where the giant redwood and sequoia trees exist. And this was an amazing thing to see these grand trees. And you you really can't even put your arms out to demonstrate the significance and the majesty of these trees because they are so massive, right? Until you've seen one of these trees, you've never really seen a tree because you, you can't get, you can, they sometimes get hollowed out inside and you can walk in, you've probably seen pictures of people where you stand inside the tree. We got our whole family inside one of the trees that was hollowed out. It was so massive and majestic and they tower they just tower over. They're just so huge. And there, there's tree after tree after tree. And you drive on this little narrow road. And I don't even know how they paved this road. Because the trees are literally on the, on the side of the road, on this side, and this side, and this side. And they have these different groves. And the groves are named after people who gave the, their own land so that these forests could be preserved. Uh, one person described these forests as enchanting. And I'm always a little bit kind of like, ah, you know, I don't really believe in fairies and leprechauns and that kind of thing. So when people say it's enchanting, it makes me feel a little weird. But when I was in that forest and they said, I read that someone said it was enchanting. I'm like, I get that. It feels like it's just a place where God's presence dwells. And I can only imagine what it was like to encounter those trees back when the full forest was there. Because did you know that of the forest of those trees, only five to 10% remains? Only five to 10% of these majestic trees remain. You see, it's as though the people who began to move out to Northern California didn't realize the significance and the beauty and the value of these trees trees. Instead of just appreciating for them for what they were and allowing them to exist as, they, as though they have for five to seven thousand years some of these trees, it takes them to grow that long. They felt like it would be a better idea uh, to cut them down and to use them, to, uh, to take them for themselves. This, a man named Thomas Larkin had a great passion for seeing his city the city of Monterey, California. He wanted to see it flourish. And everyone had been coming out to California for a gold rush. But eventually, the gold rush ended and all the gold was gone. But he saw an opportunity to create a red rush. Because you see, there was great value in these trees. They were resistant to uh, termites. They had value all over the world and the settlers of those days could, could use the emerging technologies to cut down these trees and to, and to cultivate a lumber industry and ship those products all over the world. 
But the problem was it was essentially a limited resource. What had taken thousands of years to grow in a in, in hundred years was decimated. So the passion and the zeal of the settlers like Thomas Larkin, while earnest to make a profit and to do something good, was misguided. It was short-sighted. There was only a temporary gain that they could achieve. And it was not sufficient for them to experience true, permanent flourishing. Well, in the same way, Paul is writing to a community of people who aren't able to see the forest for the trees. Here's where this connects. There's something beautiful and grand and vast and glorious right in front of them, but they're only able to see one tree. They're only able to see one thing. Instead of living in and embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ that leads to long-term flourishing, they see one action, one aspect of their life and give into it and are able to live in the fullness of what God wants for them for their permanence. You see, and there's the same sense in which believers today Instead of living in the vast glory of the gospel of grace that Jesus has given to us, this righteousness that he has given to us, we try to earn our own salvation in small, minute ways that give us short-term success but long-term failure. See, belief in Jesus Christ brings salvation not only for eternity but for every aspect of our lives and how we live on a day-to-day basis but we can't confuse the forest for the trees. So we're going to look at this in three different sections. The first one is the reason, verses 1 through 13, the remedy, verses 14 through 17, and the result of when people reject the beauty of Christ. The reason, the remedy, and the rejection of Christ. Let's first look at this. So we've seen this misguided zeal, right? So like Thomas Larkin, he was a settler who wanted Monterey to flourish. And instead of saying, we need to preserve this forest for the value that it has for the whole world, said, let's start chopping these things down because we can make some money on this individual tree. Well, Paul had zeal as well, didn't he? We know that Paul has had zeal. He was as committed to anyone to the word of God and to the commandments. He was trained by the best. He sought God in every way. But in a powerful moment, God revealed to him that instead of being faithful with his actions, Paul was relying upon himself in his own actions. Paul had made obedience to the law his ultimate goal, instead of trusting in the righteousness of God. And you see, Paul, despite being around the word of God all the time, he grew up with the Bible. He grew up with God's people. He grew up with the sacrificial system. Somehow, he had missed the forest for the trees. He wasn't seeing the gospel of grace embedded in everything. Rather, he saw faith as things that he needed to do to be a better person before God. But Paul had this revelation. He uh, realized because of an appearance of Jesus that he was missing Jesus. Instead of seeking obedience for its own sake, for him, obedience to the law had become something that he did for his own benefit. But here, Paul shares with us in verse 3 that they were ignorant. He says they were ignorant. Verse 3, look at that with me. 
For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not to submit to God's righteousness. So Paul is comparing righteousness on your own to God's righteousness. Okay, so in simple categories, righteousness on your own is this desire and this operational, functional operating system where I do what's good for God, and then God blesses me, and then God rewards me. The righteousness of God says, Jesus has come and given me righteousness. I'm not worthy of it. I shouldn't even receive it. But because of it, now I want to live faithfully for him, and I want to do the right thing before God. It's a subtle but significant change. Two people looking at the same forest see completely different things. One person says, I do the right thing because God wants me to and it will benefit me. The other person says, I have received the righteousness of God. Therefore, I want to now obey and live for Jesus Christ. One leads to temporary flourishing, but long-term lack of success. The other leads to immediate flourishing and long-term salvation and glory and connection with God. You see, Paul says they were ignorant of these things. And that's what makes him so passionate about sharing this with his countrymen. Look at what he says in verse 1. My heart's desire and prayer to God is that they would be saved. He wants his very people. These are his brothers and sisters that I talked about last week. He's pleading with them. See the forest. See Jesus in this. You've grown up with all these words and all this language about what it means to be in relationship with God. Are you really in relationship with God? Or are you doing a transactional, God wants me to do this, and so I'm going to do it. So he appeals to them, and he uses, again, 10 Old Testament passages. We're not going to go through all of them, but we could. He's talking about these two different kinds of righteousness. So his first allusion to the Old Testament occurs when he references that what Moses has written about righteousness based on the law. He doesn't actually quote Leviticus 18.5, but he alludes to this verse that calls people to faithfulness to the word. Obedience to God's law is required, yes. But God's people were often looking to their obedience for their justification in knowing Christ. Then he gives a second Old Testament reference. He says that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. That's Nehemiah 9. In Nehemiah, what's going on? The people of God are being reminded that they, they constantly have failed to obey God's law despite all his overwhelming acts of mercy. God is continually extending his kindness to his wayward children, and he delivers them from the the, uh, oppression from their enemies. Then Paul makes this case with two kinds of righteousness, right? And and this one is not really a, a real way of righteousness, but it's this, I'm doing the right thing to serve and honor God. That's one way. And the other righteousness is the righteousness that I receive from God because of what Jesus has done. Paul goes through this, and he begins to challenge them. But he expands the definition of righteousness by using Deuteronomy 30, demonstrating that not only is this concept not an Old Testament idea, but it stands apart from the way the Jews are operating. Right? They've been thinking, boy, you know, God gave us these rules, and we've got to follow them. And if we do, then he's going to be good to us. And you know how you can tell you have that operating principle functionally in your heart? is if when you face disappointment and you face bad things that happen to you, you get mad at God. God, you shouldn't have done this to me. We had a deal. I was going to live my life for you, and then these bad things happened. And so I must have done my part 
but you, God, are honestly, obviously not doing your part. I mean, and look, everybody, all of us, we've all said that. God, how could you do this to me? I, I didn't want this. I, I don't deserve this. This isn't the way that it's supposed to happen because I've been doing things the right way. Now I know I'm not a perfect person. But boy, I've really held up my end of the bargain, God, and you haven't. When we have that spirit, when those thoughts begin to enter in, then functionally we're operating at a level of self-righteousness. And it's easy for even those of us, just like the Jews who have grown up in the faith, to functionally operate that way. Now, we know Jesus died on a cross for our sins, right? We said that prayer when we were at camp when we were eight. We, we, we walked the aisle one time. So we know that Jesus died for our sins. But here's the thing. We functionally operate with this transactional approach to God. Because when he doesn't do what we want, we are disappointed with him. And so that's one opportunity for us to realize, wow, God, have I been operating in a functionally transactional way with you? And if I have, when that real argument happens in my heart, when I do feel frustrated with you, it's an opportunity for me to see, yes, Lord, I have been operating this way. I shouldn't be, but I am. And so why? Why do I operate that way? Because I've been operating in transactional. I'm not trusted in the righteousness of Christ. Because you see, when we're following Jesus and we're trusting in Jesus, we know that God is going to do things that may not please us. He has a plan, and we're in it, and he wants us to flourish. But that doesn't mean that we're not going to experience suffering and difficulty and hardship. It doesn't. It didn't work for Jesus. Why would it work for us? So we have to see suffering and hardship and difficulty, not as God not fulfilling his part of the bargain, but God wanting to draw us closer so that we, we could see that we're operating in this transactional way and move from that to a posture of trust, a posture of hope. Because we know that God loves us infinitely, everlastingly, wonderfully, because he died on the cross for our sins. And he wants us not only to know that from like a heaven uh, intellectual standpoint that I get to go to heaven, but in a functionally operating way. So when I face difficulty, I, if I have that feeling of, oh God, you're really letting me down, I can say, no, that's not what's going on. God is not letting me down. God loves me enough to press new wine out of me with suffering and hardship. And man, that's not an easy thing. Right? You've seen or heard about how wine gets made. The grapes get crushed, right? If you get a bottle of wine, it's got a grape in it. Like, that's a bad bottle. The grapes get crushed. We get crushed. But what comes out is that new wine. And that's why God allows us to suffer and to experience challenge. But these these arguments that we make with God reveal where our true heart is. And so how, does this, how else could this work out when I'm functionally operating in a transactional way with God? So for example, how do I, how do I justify myself? Because sometimes when Paul's making these appeals, it's, it's, an, it's an ancient text, it's 2,000 years old, and he's referring back, sorry, he's referring back to uh, all these old arguments from the Old Testament. We're like, how does this even apply to me? Because I don't justify myself. I'm not justifying myself, am I? But like, whenever you're protecting your reputation, you're possibly justifying yourself. So let's say you know, you've made a commitment to your employer and you haven't followed through. You haven't done the right job. You've been spending too much time while you're supposed to be working, surfing on the internet 
or checking your fantasy football scores or looking at recipes on Pinterest or whatever the thing is for you. And when this comes to light, instead of saying, you know, you're right, that's true. Instead of accepting responsibility and saying, and saying yeah, I got to take care of that. I shouldn't have done it. You blame it on someone else. Oh, well, there was this really big game. And, you know, I was just looking, I was just reading a little bit. You know, it was no big deal. I know you're paying me to pr provide for the income of the, of the business, but, you know, you know, we're commanded in Scripture on every occasion. This is another example, to love one another. Let's say someone in our church family or someone that you know has, has irritated you with their annoying habits, the way that they talk or their, or their mannerisms or their, their long, boring stories that they tell you, and you're just sitting there going, I just, I just want to go away. I don't want to hear this person tell me the story about what happened to their mom's, aunt's, dad's cat. I don't want to hear it. You know, I don't want to hear about your vacation with your perfect family and see your pictures on Facebook because, you know, we can't go on a vacation this year. I don't want to hear it. And then, you know, later on, you're just like, you know, man, what's with these impatient people around? You know, gosh, no one wants to listen to me when I tell my stories. No one really cares about what I'm going through or what I'm facing. What's wrong with these people? All right? I mean, their, their lives are they're a mess. Mine's great. Why don't anyone want to hear about what I'm going through, you know? In this moment, there's a sense of justification, right? I'm trying to prove myself righteous. Like, I'm not as bad as the other person. Like, oh, that person's got a bad life, and it's because of the choices that they've made. If they had made choices like me, well, they wouldn't be in such a big mess. And then and they come and want to talk to me all about it. So there's this moment, instead of treasuring and valuing who I am in Christ... I, 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 I turn away from the person, or I turn away from the sin, and I, and I just justify myself. I just say, you know, I'm the most important person, or I haven't really done anything wrong. I'm just like that settler who says, I'm going to chop down an ancient tree for a few weeks of reprieve. We've shortchanged the work of Christ in our lives. We, we've given into this temptation to be justified for the moment instead of remembering that we're justified for eternity. And so instead of allowing our response in these moments where we're confronted with our own sin or we're called to care for and listen to a brother or sister who's hurting, we allow our own needs and our own desires drive what we do and how we operate instead of embracing Jesus on a greater level in that moment. So that's the reality of our rejection of Christ. What is the remedy for our rejection of Christ, verses 14 through 17. At this point, Paul is, is shifting his argument, not on the fact that we're not righteous, but how are we made righteous? He says this in, uh, in Deuteronomy. He quotes this, this section from Deuteronomy. He says, the word of Christ is near you. The word of Christ is near you. Ask these questions and inviting them to consider how does faith happen in our life? It's through hearing the word and responding to the word. He questions us to move uh, to consider that. He moves us to consider that a person can't call on someone and that they haven't believed. We can't believe in one of whom we haven't heard. We, haven't, we cannot hear of one without preaching. And unless preachers are sent, the word will not be near. And let me just say to you, when, when, so many times in the New Testament when it talks about preaching, it's not just meaning a guy stand up with a microphone presenting a message. It's the proclamation of the word that is going out to the world through the lives of his followers. Who are his followers? Raise your hand, somebody. Right? 
the message of the cross goes out through our lives, not just from pulpits, not just on podcasts, but through your lives as you preach the gospel through your life, right? as you live out this gospel faith in word and in deed. And he says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. He's referring to this section of Isaiah where the prophet is speaking of the coming of the Lord's salvation. This good news that this is what God has done. You see, so many religions in the world, this is how you would describe them. Fundamentally, this is what religion is. Do. It's what you do to be right with God. What is the Christian faith? Done. Done versus do. Here you've got to do. You've got to justify. You've got to work at it. Done means Jesus has accomplished salvation for all who believe. It's done. Now that doesn't mean that we're done because we're continually being transformed by his word to be the person he's called us to be. But we no longer have to struggle or strive or try to make it work. You can't fix everything. You can't fix yourself. But Jesus already has because the work has been done. And that's why God needs his people out there proclaiming the message of salvation. Living out this at a functional heart level that yes, I'm broken and sinful, but I'm also deeply loved. And that affects how I relate. It means then, so then when at work, I'm not doing the best job and I am confronted, I can say, you know what? You're absolutely right. I have been wasting time. I haven't been using my creative energy. I haven't given my all. And so I need to change what I'm doing. Now, I think we also struggle in America with overwork. You could also say, Faithfully, you know, I've been working too hard because I've been justifying myself to try to make it, to prove myself to my boss or to my friends from high school or to the people who follow me on Twitter that I'm somebody. So I work like crazy and instead say, I need to trust God and rest, to rejoice in who he is, work hard when I'm called to work, rest well when I'm called to rest, to do the thing I'm supposed to be doing. It's different for each person depending on where you are. And then we say to the person who's talking to us, the person who comes to us in need. Now, we obviously need to set appropriate boundaries, right? But we can listen attentively because we know that in our moment of pain, in our time of struggle, someone has listened to us. Jesus, who suffered and died, listens to our concerns, our pain, our sorrow. And so when someone comes to me and I, I don't want to listen to them, I'm not saying this is any of you. I've never not wanted to listen to any of you, I promise. We say, God has given me this opportunity to minister, to care, not to give advice and to say, here's what you should be doing, but just to listen and say, you know, that sounds like it's really hard. I want you to know I'm praying for you and I'm with you. God changes us. He moves us. When we hear the word of Christ, See, we've participated in his fellowship. We've become part of his body. We're, we're members of his family. And see, the thing for us, friends, we've, we've come to this table. We've come to this place. We've heard the word. We've experienced all these things. Are we really actually living out a functional gospel life? Or are we justifying ourselves by our own actions? Maybe you thought the things that you were doing were good. They were zealous, just like Paul. Maybe you have passion, but is your passion to rest in and to rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
see, what's the result of their rejection, verses 18 through 21? He gets to this last section, and he's giving them more prophetic words from Isaiah. There is a result for his people. This, this chapter doesn't really end on a high note. The high note is in the middle about what it means to know and love the gospel. But here, what happens to the Jews? In this final section, he shares with them more words. Have they not heard? See, Paul is inviting his hearers, the Jews, those who live out their functional life outside the gospel operating system. He's inviting them to hear the word. He quotes Psalm 19.4. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. This psalm is about the beauty and the glory of the law of God. It reminds us that day by day, the word of God goes forth in word and through creation, impacting every single human being, just like he was talking about in Romans chapter 1. He asked them other questions to consider. Have you embraced Christ? Because you see, friends, this is not a, a new thing that people have had to struggle with. This goes back from the beginning of time. It's since Adam and Eve rejected God's word, there's this fundamental aspect of our hearts that wants to justify ourselves by our own actions. And even for believers, even though we've been set free from sin and death, we can still operate that way. We can still operate that way. So what do the Romans do? What shall we do? Will they become like Israel, blessed with the word of God, but also rejecting it? Or will they trust in the mercy of God? Well, they believe in the one who has been sent to them as the preacher, and then they become preachers themselves who have a zealous regard for the world around them. What will you do? Will you begin to embrace this functional way of living that says that Jesus loves me so much? He created me in his image. And that the application of the word of God is not just come to church and listen to a sermon and be saved at the end of time but it's to operate with a gospel perspective. That boy, when I, feel, when I feel mad at God for the way things didn't turn out, I can ask myself, God, maybe you're wanting me to learn and grow through this and to trust you more so that you have a ministry for me that I didn't anticipate having. Maybe when you're confronted with your own sin, instead of dodging it or hiding from it, you can say, yes, it's true, and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? I'm gonna seek the gospel and seek restoration from you and with God. You get freed from that. You're not living under a burden because you've been set free from Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ. You see, Thomas Larkin could only see the trees for his immediate, it's a, their immediate and temporal value, something to be chopped down and consumed just for this temporary moment. Oh, yeah, I'm fine. I'm not bad. Everything's good. I'm good. I'm a good person. But those who saw the value of the trees said, no, we need to care for and nurture and be reminded of this forest, which is what I'm, my direct parallel here is this gospel life. Don't miss the gospel life that is everywhere in scripture because you're living functionally out of a self-righteousness life. And so what does that mean for you? Right, the, the purpose of Woodland Presbyterian Church is to mature God's people to serve a hurting world. We have on our little logo a leaf. It's a woodland, right? land of oak trees that grow deep. How do you grow deep? When the rains come and the winds blow, you've got to have a deep foundation. Part of it is listening here on Sundays, but part of it is taking that next step to grow in a group. Part of it is applying. What, I guarantee you, you're going to learn more about your faith if you try to apply it than you ever will in listening to me talk. Because I don't really have anything good to say. 
God only has something good to say. So take what he's saying and apply it, and then you're gonna learn about your faith in new and amazing ways. So what's the one thing God is telling you to do? Is it an issue at work? Is it an issue in a relationship? Is it for, for asking God to reorient your understanding of what he's doing in your life? Is it saying, I need to take time away from work to rest, to be refreshed and to be encouraged and to trust that God loves me no matter if I make the bonus or not? What is it that God is telling you to do? You see, there's this beautiful forest that exists that's there. It's never going away. No human action can ever chop it down or ever break it apart. And it's the kingdom of God. And the question is, do you embrace it? Do you live in it? Or are you making your own way? You pray with me. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.